Welcome to SOCAP Women, where the voices of world-changing female leaders gather to share their journey, insights, hope, and practical how-tos in making the world a better place. I'm Kate Byrne, president of SOCAP Global and host for our conversation together today. We are very fortunate to be joined by Judy Samuelson, vice president at the Aspen Institute, founder and executive director of the Aspen Institute Business and Society Program, and a brand new author in her own right. We're gonna to talk to Judy today about her path as well as get a sneak peek into her new book that's due out next month on January 12th, The Six New Rules for Business, Creating Real Value in a Changing World. In it, Judy discusses the profound shifts and attitudes and mindsets that are redefining our notions of what constitutes business success. How changes such as that increase of transparency and the power of the worker voice getting louder and louder and the lessening importance of capital, how that's changing things. How do we balance the needs of our global supply chain with the reality of our limited natural resources? They're not infinite after all. And Judy gives us a roadmap of how to engage business decision makers and then identify the forces that are gonna move the needle most, both in the boardroom and in business classrooms as well. And finally, she also offers a powerful guide to how businesses are changing today and how best to succeed in tomorrow's economic and social landscape, the role that we can each play as change makers ourselves. Judy, hello, 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 and welcome. So glad you're here. I'm glad to be here as well. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. So what I would love is, because I really do believe when people can hear and see, if you will, a woman come and go through all the different changes and facets that you have through your career. Can you share with us a bit about your journey and your path and how you got to where you are today? Sure. You know, I, I've had the good fortune of working in basically all sectors. I, I started out working in government in California and in the state legislature there after I finished up college. I came east, you know, to to get a business degree and uh, somehow never made it back to my native state of California again. But in that process, I, I, I became, during my time in, in Sacramento working in government, I, I just became more interested in how do decisions get made? You know, where, where's the, and had a sense that I was kind of missing a piece of the puzzle and thought that somehow and I was, I was correct, the business education or a management degree would give me a broader perspective on on institutions, particularly the private sector, but and you know I was interested in economic development and kind of helped me think through questions of where jobs really come from and and the role of of, uh, of organizations in tackling the kinds of problems that that we faced in the state of California. I left business school and went into banking almost because I was looking for kind of more grounding and more of the language of business and more opportunity to understand that private sector mindset. And then I moved from there to the Ford Foundation where I ran a, kind of an early form of social impact investing at, at Ford. And then it was during that period of time that colleagues and I really started asking questions, you know, kind of about the role of, the, of business in in addressing the kinds of things that the Ford Foundation cared about, economic development, certainly job creation, poverty alleviation. And there was a Ford was graced with having some really extraordinary business leaders on the board, CEOs of Levi Strauss and Cummins Engine and Tata Industries and, 
And they were asking us more, why does anybody talk about the, the private sector at the Ford Foundation? And that, that actually kind of triggered a, a several year examination of, of kind of what was happening in the organizing of businesses that were kind of leaning in to, into the kind of questions around economic development and greater prosperity. And so, you know, that, that put me into, into many conversations with business leaders and started looking at business education as one of the kind of places that people get their grounding in these questions that we still are asking today. So that was a journey. And I left the Ford Foundation with a grant to start this program, which was first aimed at saying, what is it, what's a part of it that business schools, what's the role that business schools need to play in preparing executives for social environmental stewardship? I really want to do a much deeper dive into that piece as we get a little bit farther into the conversation, because I just was involved in a conversation with Sarani Cohen, and I was asking that very piece. So we'll, we'll get to that in, in a sec. But before, fascinating time to be at Ford, because that was really way back in the beginning of impact investing and when it was all getting started and a lot of history there. So what thus far has been the hardest decision that you've had to make? And why did you choose the answer you did? Because I like to ask people this question because I think it helps get inside a person's head. So then it kind of deepens the conversation as we go on. Well, I think one was when I was leaving the Ford Foundation, the, the basic decision of whether I would start something new or you know, go and work for somebody that I respected where I could continue to do the kinds of things that I've been interested in at Ford. And, um, you know, I, I think I'd had the um, great fortune of working for an institution that I deeply admired, but also didn't, it gave you a fair amount of flexibility as a professional. You kind of set your own hours and wasn't looking over your shoulder. They mostly cared about the quality of the work and, and less about, and I had young kids at the time. And when I started interviewing for, for jobs, when it was time for me to move on, I, I all of a sudden thought, oh my God, if I take this job, somebody's <laughs> going to be tapping me on the shorty on Friday night and saying, this is your problem to solve over the weekend. And I thought, yeah, maybe not. So, um, <laughs> but I also knew that I was, I was really interested in continuing the work of this corporate involvement initiative that we had launched at Ford and wanted to stay on that track. And I didn't really see, I didn't see something that, felt like it was going to get at the kind of systems level questions that, that I was particularly interested in. And so I was, you know, I had the good fortune to, to start something new and, and I never looked back. It's been a great experience. That's terrific. Well, you actually alluded this to your a uh, little bit earlier. So we've, we've been talking a lot about stakeholder capitalism, if you will, the roles of many different divisions of, of business and public and private sector and government and academia. We've been talking about it for some time. Why do you think we haven't made more progress? Well, it's a very good question. I think some of it is, is what the book is about. You know, that we've had, we've come through a very long period of adherence to the notion that, you know, companies really exist to maximize profits and, and you know, return to shareholders. And that's been a real stranglehold on public companies, I have to say. It's also been, it's a, what Al Gore would call an inconvenient truth that the, the system is designed for that purpose at this point. So how we pay executives, a lot of the decision rules are really, there's, there's kind of 
this kind of scaffolding of incentives and um, and protocols and decision rules that are built around the assumption that that's really that's really the game that we're playing. And as a result of that, you it's not sufficient just to kind of say, wait a minute, the theory itself is suspect. You also have to be making some pretty profound changes in the way things operate. And so, I'd say we're on the we're on the path, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a generational shift, but mm-hmm. things have changed pretty profoundly. I mean, we we've had there are many reasons to believe that when we look back on this period, we will have seen a pretty profound shift in the kind of roles and attitudes that permeate business. I think when we look back on this period in another 10 or 15 years, Um, I don't, I don't more to do, but yeah, yeah, exactly. I think there has been a palpable shift and we may not have seen the outcomes yet, but we're, we've made a definite turn that much, that much is for sure. That old shareholder primacy gets you every time. So those are all the old rules, right? Like what defines values and profit and success? Let's take a little peek and a dip into your book. So what are the new rules of business? You know, the old rules are very much assumed that the business is is self-contained. You know, that we can measure success by looking at the attributes of the business. And the new rules you know, take into account that the real value of business is intangible. It's not something that's easy to measure. You know, it's about trust and reputation and the ability to attract and retain talent. Purpose is essential. You know, that the, that businesses that, you know, it is, it is not true that the law requires public companies to put shareholders in front of everybody else. I mean, that is gradually, I think, getting, gaining more currency. So, the, the question of the purpose is something that the corporation uh, identifies itself and the process by which that happens and then assuring that it's actually operationalized is, is, um, is a new, is kind of new rulemaking in, in this day and age. Um, I'd like to say that, you know, businesses, you know, people tend to, uh, people who are particularly critical of business, think of it business as being bad. Well, business isn't bad or good. Business is a a bundle of decision rules and, and, and protocols, and they ultimately have good or bad results. And what we're seeing in these new rules is really an opening up of business. You know, we're taking down these, the walls between the business and, of course, the great ecosystem in which business resides. resides. And so what the new rules help us see is that business is, you know, wholly dependent on kind of the, the wider kind of context in which business operates and that there are there are important players that help make those connections you know very sophisticated NGOs that operate and who wants to are helping define what the responsibility of business is it's not something anymore that is kind of defined by the narrow footprint of the business and maybe you know the wants of the fence fence line neighbors as they used to say mm-hmm. it's really something that is not not necessarily in the control of the business with massive supply chains and global reach and operations you know, a clever NGO can get a hold of your brand and and have um, and wreck you know havoc. And so that the importance of employees, change in in the importance of of uh, capital. You know, we're not operating in an era in which capital is scarce. Capital is abundant, and you know we assigned an awful lot of power to investors 
which, you know, capital is not really king anymore. It's really much more about the culture of the enterprise. So all of these things are, are in a shift. One of the things I also talk about is that, you know, competition obviously is still a force in business, but when we're facing the kinds of existential threats that, you know, climate change and, you know, not just environmental concerns, but growing inequality, it requires business to be in the business of co-creation, not just competition in order to really make progress on some of these, these um, fundamental questions and, and challenges. So, you know, those are some of the things that these rules open us up to. Yeah, I, th- I really double down on that co-creation and that whole notion that these, these threats are so huge that there's there's no one person, company, sector alone who can solve them. Everyone really has to practice some radical collaboration. Right. Mm-hmm. I talk about, for example, about um, fisheries as an example of that. There's a great case study in the book about the kind of white fish industry in the, in the North Atlantic and, you know, that was facing uh, rapid decline in stocks. And, you know, the answer, which is, you know, being used in lots of different regions around the world is really working with the market leader. So it was the biggest processor of, of white fish, you know, it's kind of Pollock and these other fishes that end up in fish sticks and McDonald's, you know, fish mm-hmm. products and these kinds of, of massive markets. But finding a mass, a big producer who then has to be at the table to corral the, uh, the competitors in that industry to, in order to change the real protocols that then function across the industry and then down through the food chain of all of the small processors and the, and the individual fishing boats that in parts of the fleets that, that serve the industry. And you can see the role of the NGO. You can see the role of an active media bringing these kinds of issues to bear. And you can see how you know, guys that used to fiercely compete are, are basically required to print, come together at the table and, and collaborate in order to, to make real progress on the problem, which will defeat them all if they don't work together. So there's a lot of examples of that where business leans in because you know, it's really about the health of the commons. And it's a, you know, the tragedy of the commons is still an issue. So to that end and building on that a little bit about the complexity of life, right? And it's incredibly challenging and there's been extraordinary increase, sadly, with, you know, racial unrest and political disruptions and COVID and, 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 and. So companies and the leaders who run them, the CEO in particular, now is being asked to sort of step up and be that, that voice. They've always been that voice, but, but it actually, it demonstrates so much more than just, you know, the company almost takes on a persona. So how has the role of CEO actually changed in these times? You know, one of our advisors is a woman named Tierney Remick, who is the co-chair of the search, the CEO and board search practice at Corn Ferry. And she talks about the reality that the CEO today is actually leading, increasingly is leading a community, not just mm-hmm. a company. And that, you know, employees expect something very different from their CEO. They expect empathy, you know, they expect the CEO to relate to the issues that are important to them as individuals and members of communities, as well as, of course, families. And and so the the role has changed fairly dramatically. I think we're also going to see 
when we come out of COVID, I think we're going to see a lot of change at the top. I think we're going to see, you know, directors who are tired of having spent, you know, the last however many months it ends up being on Zoom calls relentlessly and, you know, the constant stress and pressure. And I think we'll see a lot of turnover. I think we'll see an opportunity for new people to step in. And I think we're going to see a real, a real change in the degree of commitment and um, identification with some of these problems that you're talking about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, so then too, with the increased emphasis on being a socially good contributing citizen, you know, this all started way back when early days, there was philanthropy and then there was social good and there was corporate responsibility, AKA CSR. How should companies be defining that? Is that now one and the same? Is impact different than corporate social responsibility? You know, one of the very first things when I was still at the Ford Foundation and we were developing the Corporate Involvement Initiative, one of the, the statistics or kind of findings of, of the work that we were doing that stuck with me is that for all of the good work of philanthropy and there are any number of corporations that have significant philanthropic budgets, it's a tiny, almost immeasurable rounding error mm -hmm. relative to the core capacity and the global reach and distribution systems and the ways in which business influences behavior through the fundamental questions of how they operate their business. Indra Nui, the former CEO of Pepsi, used to say, you know, it's not, it's not how you give away your money, it's how you make your money that matters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all know this to be true. So regardless of what kind of company or what industry or what the issues that they're working on, the, the real action is in the basic design of the, of the business model. You know, what do they value? How do they value it? With what kind of consciousness are they making fundamental decisions about who and how they hire, where they operate, you know, how they price their product, how they think about competition, how they collaborate, all of the basic fundamental decisions about how you operationalize, you know, the, the, the business roundtable when they came out with their restatement of the purpose of the corporation, you know, that was a, it was a fundamentally, it was a fundamentally important thing to do. And I think it was an, it was an important moment, but the real action today, of course, is like, how do we operationalize that change? So what is business doing to now make sure that the intentions are met with, with this reality? So yeah, that's it. That's, that's the work. Yeah, it, that's the real work. Exactly. It's taking the intention and making it an actionable and then measuring it on the other end, right? And being bold enough and brave enough to you know, stake a claim and say, okay, we're going to commit to hitting this, this mark, or here's the path we're going to take. And then I think it's up to us, either shareholders and consumers to also, to a degree, keep everybody honest to the degree of, or at least I'd say accountable and just make sure that even they don't have, they may not hit the marks, but at least getting near the marks or being aware that someone is paying attention and that people will yep. be going back, right? And pointing that out. So with that, what else is on the CEO agenda for 2021? Now we finally have an official new administration stepping into place. How's that gonna impact or does it even have an impact 
Well, I think we have to watch carefully. You know, the business community is naturally going to resist, you know, any number of things that will be coming out of the new Congress and out of out of the new administration that is, you know, hell bent to bring about some change in this kind of basic dance between business and society. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, there was a moment, you know, I, I was one who believed that in fact, the corporate tax rate was too high. And so when the, when Trump's uh, corporate tax bill came through, my hope was that we were really going to see by reducing the tax rate from whatever it was 34, 36% down to, you know, low twenties, that it would be an opportunity to really do a reset on the kind of basic social contract in the sense that, you know, businesses were going to be able to be free to bring, um, you know, these profits back into the United States. There would be an opportunity for them to really reinvest again in enterprises here and in infrastructure and in employees. We didn't see that. Mm-hmm. We didn't see it. We saw stock buybacks and we saw a lot of return to the shareholders and, and the outcry on business was fair. So we've got another moment in time, you know, a lot of, a lot more water under the bridge in the last year. And there are business leaders in many of them who have made, you know, important statements about, about racial equity and about the investments that they're making as a firm, both internal processes, as well as external investment in communities. So, you know, I think we just have to watch carefully, but I do think that the, the new accountability mechanism is its employees, mm-hmm. employees that are closest to the action. And I believe that that is a, that kind of reckoning is one that we haven't yet seen this fully play out. You know, we've seen it with an, in another, a number of companies where it's been the employees that have really stepped up and, and called for change around climate, for example, at Amazon would be a good example, or around mm-hmm. Me Too at Google. I mean, the employees are being heard. And so, you know, I'm not sure what to expect. I'm sure there'll be a lot of business resistance to things that they find is going to be, is going to hampering their ability to operate their businesses the way they choose. But, you know, it's going to be an important, important moment for people to be leaning in and holding business to account. So that's a, that's a beautiful segue into, because I wanted to do a little deeper dive, because I love this notion of employees becoming not just one of the stakeholder groups, but actually, as you had, as you pose in the book, they're becoming the business. Can you paint a little bit of a deeper picture in that? Absolutely. You know, one of another uh, person who serves on our advisory board is Leo Strine, who is a former chancellor of the Delaware court and, and, um, you know, deep, deep thinker about business. And he says ESG doesn't capture it. So if ESG is E for environment, S for all of the social dimensions and consequences, and then G, you know, around questions of, of governance and decision-making, by the way, it's all about governance as far as I'm concerned. That is, it's all about governance. It's how you make decisions. But, it, you know, he's the point he's making is that that S is, is too comprehensive. It's like we really need to separate out the employee as its own kind of bucket to be to, to think about the real material consequences of business decision making on that population. Look, employees are, you know, they are the most, they're your, they are truly your ally. They are most aligned with the health of the enterprise. They care deeply about the company to be successful over the long haul because they know that their success is going to be tied to the success of the enterprise. So there's really no degrees of freedom here. 
I think what we've seen in this in recent months during the, you know, the, you know, kind of navigating this, this horrible public health crisis that we've been living through is kind of a humanizing of the employee. You know, we've, we've been more, we've been, it's been brought up kind of close and personal, you know, the, the kind of the rules of engagement for employees. But investors are all over the map on this stuff. You know, we think about social responsibility and, and, and social responsible investing and the like. But, uh, you know, ultimately investors are, you know, it's a, it's a big polyglot group. They have lots of different needs and lots of different demands on companies. And they don't speak with one voice. Where employees are much more inclined to be identifying the risks, looking for the opportunity for the enterprise. And I think have a real, there's a real... Uh, coherent, there's a real narrative there mm-hmm. about business as being, you know, part and parcel of the, of the company's success. And of course, there's any number of companies that have operated that way. You know, I always think about Southwest and Herb Keller and JetBlue is another one. We had a conference call yesterday with uh, Brandon Nelson, who is the mm. general counsel of JetBlue. And they're another one who is like, you know, big investment in the employees. They're the only one in the airline industry that apparently hasn't furloughed workers. You know, there's there's a lot to say about, you know, there's no degrees of freedom between how you treat your employees and whether or not customer service is what you want it to be. So, you know, let's just start with those basics. Yep, exactly. So I want to sit there now and do a little dive into this educational piece, right? So we've got, and both from not only the, from just basic employees, but also you know, the next generation of, yes, marketing executives and sales folk, et cetera, but also from the finance side of the house. Because to your point, I I believe, is it something like 89%? I can't remember the specific factoid, but there's a, a large, fairly large percentage of students who upon entering business school say, oh my gosh, yes, I want to do a socially just company. I'm going to be a B Corp, et cetera. And then literally by the time 24 months later, they exit, I think that number goes down significantly, especially in the finance side of the house. So what is the impact of business schools? And, and how do we adjust that so that we, we continue to have that more um, socially conscious and active purpose-driven executive and investor who's values-oriented as opposed to just the old rules of, you know, money first? Well, you know, it's a huge industry. Yeah, it is. At the undergraduate level, I think we vastly undercount how many people pursue business as a, as a degree. It's, you know, the number is roughly 25% and it's been like that for decades. Mm-hmm. But I think that that undercounts a lot of people that pursue economics degrees in liberal arts colleges don't have a business degree. It undercounts the minors. It undercounts the, you know, people that, uh, schools that are providing business education in lots of different formats and, and uh, credentialing. Look, this is only going to go up. You know, parents, think about parents and the, looking at the cost of education today, undergraduate education in particular, and, you know, guess what that conversation is like around the dining table when, when uh, students are choosing their colleges. And it's like, well, what are you going to, you know, so much for the art history majors here, right? Yes, so, exactly. Although personally, I loved art history and glad I had a minor in art history. <laughs> um, but so, and at the, at the graduate level, MBAs, you know, they're also, it's, you know, after teaching credentials, it's the largest portion of, of the uh, graduate degree market. So, 
we we call it we call business education kind of you know a little bit it's kind of the education of citizenry and at its best it's a it's a wonderful dive into organizations and how they behave and people and how they make decisions and yes value how value is created and measured how you get things done how organizations function so I loved going to business school. I thought it was a wonderful orientation to kind of the wider world that, that I, was, I was working to understand. So there's great potential there. And we've seen a lot of change in the last 20 plus years with, uh, you know, kind of taking what used to be a kind of a conversation that was happening, happening only in ethics classrooms and kind of moving it into the, into the kind of hierarchy of of courses that matter most in the in the MBA curriculum. And so we've seen a lot of that change, but you are correct that finance classrooms are, are a little bit stuck. So we, in conducting research on business schools over the years, we found that, uh, you know, I think what you were saying that, that students enter kind of thinking like consumers. Yes. They, you know, they see all of the, all of the com- competing uh, expectations and things that they care about. And, but they exit and you can, you know, you can measure it. And I don't think it's changed much, you know, but the last time we went in, I mean, they exit thinking more like profit maximizers and that, so, you know, it's still fair to ask not only what are we teaching, but what are students actually learning Mm -hmm. and where are these, where are these assumptions around the simplicity of measuring success only through the lens of kind of profits or stock price where, you know, where is that showing up across the curriculum? And so, you know, there's more work to do here, clearly. I think, again, I think we're gonna, it's going to be a generational shift. But you're seeing, uh, you know, that's a, that is a, it's a, it's an area where we need much greater diversity. We need more women going into, you know, finance classrooms. We need more women at the, at the senior echelons of these firms. They naturally tend to think, I think they connect dots. I think that's one of the things that women naturally do. So, you know, to your audience, I feel like that's a, that's a, you know, a call for, a, you know, change in the finance sector. But I think, I think we'll see, you know, we're seeing some real change at the, in the leadership levels of business schools. And, uh, you know, I, I, again, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that they will begin business schools can mirror what they're seeing in the business sector, which is that we need people that can manage across this this complexity and you know if what it's what what's required to operate successfully in a global environment with complex supply chains and limited resources or natural limits on natural resources and and a changing employee population so i think you know that's the challenge is to catch up with the change that's already taking place in the business world you know, I want to build off a little bit about the uh, reference to getting more women in the boardroom and in leadership positions. And I want to relate it to, I think, the aftermath of, of COVID, right, and the pandemic and what that's going to be doing in the workplace. And this whole notion earlier, too, that you alluded to that, you know, the employee is the business. I've long felt that we would be able to get more women in the boardroom if we opened up the types of titles that we're seeking. And yes, I definitely want to get more women in the finance world, but I also know that moving forward, I think that narratives and that storytelling piece, so chief marketing officers, and then also chief people officers, because to your point, 
people are such so important, the lifeblood of a company, that if we were expanding and getting some of those titles around the board seat, which mm. usually happens to be fulfilled by women, we'd start seeing some shifts taking place. So I'm I'm wondering, in addition to that, are there any other positive opportunities that you see that's have been coming about with COVID-19? In terms of women moving yep. into these positions? Well, I don't know if it's related to COVID-19. I do think we will see, I think we'll see, um, we'll see a lot of people leaving boards when we get through this. And I think, you know, it'll be a natural time to, you know, there's a, there's some research that Hydrogen Struggles released recently that said that there's been a, a shift away from more change and diversity almost during this, you know, kind of in this moment of crisis that there's a sense of kind of, wait, let's stay put. Let's not make any changes right now. Kind of a conservatism that takes over, Um, you know, whether that's justified or not, I think, you know, I'd leave up to, you know, uh, somebody else, but I do think that once we get through this, we'll, we'll start to see some real turnover on boards and that's going to be an opening up. Look, if it were up to me, I'd make it, I would just, I'd enforce some kind of quotas. I, you know, I know that that's not a popular point of view here, but, you know, I remember, you know, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, the consent decree came down on AT&T where they had to kind of look in a fresh way at their, you know, at their job requirements and whether or not they were, you know, all genderized or, you know, they were keeping women from moving into the, into, um, you know, the ranks of management and, um, you know, affirmative action worked. Yep. Yep. You know, it opened things up. And so I think there ought to be affirmative action for boards. I, I feel like there should be no degrees of freedom. I just kind of laugh because I, you know, I think it was Goldman that first came out and then NASDAQ has followed suit with some sense of whether it's a rule or a protocol or kind of, you know, they're, they're basically, I think Goldman said, we're not going to take companies. We're not going to engage companies in, uh, through the IPO process unless they have at least one woman on the board. It's like, really? At least one? That's yeah. <laughs> Dream big. That's a pretty low bar. Hey, <laughs> so It's like, really? You know, NASDAQ said they, you need two diverse people, you know, at oh. least one woman or, you know, one or two, you know, people of color, or, you know, and they kind of have various criteria. It's like, oh my God, look, I get it. Um, but, you know, if there's not, you know, there are plenty of, there's a lot of talent out there. Yep. And, you know, you, you get the fact that CEOs want boards that they can work with. I mean, who wouldn't, right? Right. But, um, I, I'd, I'd raise the bar. Yeah. I, I, you won't get any argument out here in California. We did the, you know, that bill 826. Oh, right. Right. Exactly. Right. And, at first it was, you know, everyone's great. And then there was all the pushback and it was the same sort of thing. It was a woman and you've got to be kidding at this point in time. Yeah. You know, point. women, women do well in committee work. <laughs> yeah. You know? exactly. They are connectors. They are, they do have an ability to kind of look inside and outside and, and, um, you know, naturally make, connections. And I, I believe that it, uh, I can imagine, I just feel that boards would function very differently if they were half women. 
Well, and those that do have diverse, uh, greater diversity also demonstrate they perform better. There's a better return on profit. I think it's, it used to be 29%. It might be up to 35% now. So we've got data that it's, yeah. it's also smart business. Right. For some Absolutely. of the that, that you mentioned. So with all this, you know, potential sort of exodus eventually from organizations of, of boomers, what kinds of opportunities are there for the young for the young crew coming in and taking their place, the Gen Z, the, the millennial. I mean, I know now we've got so many workplaces are home to five generations, mm-hmm. which is definitely a managerial challenge. But what are some of the opportunities that you see for young workers now that as boomers are beginning to opt out? Well, you know, we have a, a program that we operate at the Aspen Business and Society program that's called the First Mover Fellowship. And it basically takes people mostly mid-career, but some of them are pretty are younger than that. Some of them are older. We don't like to put kind of any particular constraint on, on who might benefit from the program and get something out of it and have time to build. But they, it's around building the skills of individuals who are strongly committed to using business as a, as a force for you know, positive change. And they you know, the, the big message from that program is you can be working in virtually any different domain and mm-hmm. there's important work to do. So, you know, the, the people in this program, we take 21 people into the program every year, you know, they work across the spectrum on, on you know, almost as many different issues as there are people in the program. You know, there's certainly a cluster who work on questions about um access, you know, design of products to reach people that traditionally have not had as easy access to say banking services or, or, or credit services. There are people who are working on packaging. There are people who are working on, on um, kind of internal incentive systems around climate. There are people who work on, there was a guy in the program a couple of years ago who was at AT&T and his project in the course of the fellowship was to use the point of purchase of cell phones Hmm. to make sure that parents really understood the kinds of problems that kids can get into with their first cell cell phone and to make sure that they understood the kinds of controls and and the technology of the phone and could make active use of the protections that were in there for parents. Well, you know, that wasn't the kind of thing that AT&T you know, wanted to necessarily market around initially because they're essentially saying that they're selling or that they're serving a product <laughs> that a problem associated with it. You know, that's not exactly the, the you know, favorite thing to, for the chief marketing officer to be working on. Right. But it's interesting. I mean, and in the, in the course of the program, the fellowship program, you know, you learn storytelling and you learn deep listening skills and you learn building, you know, finding mentors and, and problem framing and problem reframing and, the, you know, the importance of stepping back and reflecting. So I, I love this program. And because of some of the skills that he built, he gradually kind of won over and they got incredible acclaim for releasing this program and blowing it out through their frontline workers in their, in the, in the AT&T stores. And so, you know, I just use that as one, one small example of what some of these people do, but I think I would just say, you know, keep your eyes open yeah. for where there's opportunity and wherever you sit. And you know, the other thing we know today is that the people coming in have extraordinary skills for team building. 
you know, they, they grew, we talk about digital natives. I mean, they really understand the power of social networks and the internet and using those to connect with people across the enterprise to drive change from within. You know, they're naturals at it. And I think that we're gonna see some important changes happen as a result of people who are entering the workforce and are impatient to see the kinds of changes and see that see their companies engage deeply in the kinds of issues that keep them awake at night. Yeah, in my mind, you know, I think of when I think of sort of the the movement makers of today. You've got Greta, you had Malala, you have the Parkland kids, and they all stood up and said, "Okay, okay, okay. There's this crisis. Let's get going." You all adults have the resources. So then, to me, it'll be up to the senior leadership to frankly, practice a little bit of leading from the bench as opposed to leading from the field mm-hmm. and do some, some management switching and letting this next generation really help us move forward. I think because I agree with you, they are very much systems thinkers. So they understand the different ways that the different segments and sectors can work together and how that movement here and one point of the business can actually result in a dramatic shift in another part of the business. And I have great hope for that. You know, it does take courage though. Yes, it does. I mean, you move inside these enterprises and, um, you know, there are norms and, and, um, and, you know, people want to be accepted and they want to, you know, they, they appropriately are worried about their own job security. So there's another program that I recommend it's called giving voice to values something that we we uh, helped incubate in its very early days written um, run by a, a wonderful scholar named Mary Gentilly and the basic idea there is that people know the right thing to do it's not about knowing what's right and wrong it's not you know ethical reasoning shouldn't be about trying to figure out what's the right thing to do it's really about making sure that people have the opportunity to practice their voice in an appropriate way and that they've been given opportunities, and this is something that goes back to the education system, to actually lean in on these questions and articulate an argument, to you know, to kind of realize that you're what you're trying to do is make the opportunity to raise your voice in an organization to make that the norm, that mm-hmm. that is something that you're expected to do. It's just as important for you to do that as it might be for you to make a smart decision in in other some other domain. You know, it's part of what's normative in business is to be able to speak to these questions today. They are simply too present and too important to the long-term success of the business to stay quiet. And we've seen too many examples of companies where the comp- where you know it's been hard to hear the employees um, <laughs> when there is a problem. And so, um, you know, it's too late for that now. We have to move on. I totally agree. And it's, it, to me, it is, it's no longer about, um, it's about discourse and perhaps debate. And some of these issues are so huge and they are messy. So there are going to be differing opinions, but that's, that's a good thing that should be encouraged because exactly right. That means that there's a culture of trust. And then from there, you can actually really build earth changing solutions. Yeah. I mean, you're going to get more creativity Mm-hmm. You, know, you build a culture where you're really welcoming that kind of thinking and dialogue and people are going to see things. I write about in the book, I write about Herman Miller and mm-hmm. that their investment, their belief in design and their belief in the, in the profession of design and, you know, naturally extended into their respect for employees. 
And as a result of that, you know, they were one of the very first companies to really establish sustainability and, and making that part of the, de the uh, design ethic. Well, you know, what, what a payback that is. It's huge. So by creating the environment where employees are, you know, at the table on, on these questions, you know, is, is uh, financially rewarding over time. Absolutely. All right. Well, in closing, what makes you hopeful as we enter into 2021? I think what makes me hopeful is that I really do see profound changes in culture, you know, in the culture of enterprise. I do think we're seeing uh, new kinds of leaders emerge and lots and lots of examples of companies that have, that are making these issues that used to be viewed as kind of an externality, um, you know, part of their own competitive advantage to be ahead of the curve on these questions, whether it was Microsoft and the, and the commitment they made early this year on climate change, um, that one sticks out as one. Well, you know, obviously this makes employees proud, you know, proud to be a part of that enterprise. And I think it's a cultural shift that is going to continue to play out. So I'm, I'm, I'm a believer. Um, look, business is the most important institution of our age. It has remarkable power and reach. And we don't address our most complex problems with that business at the table in a, in a fulsome way. And that is going to be about culture. And I think we're, we're in the middle of a, of, a, of a profound cultural shift. Well, it's, it's an amazing and exciting time. Definitely, it's, 2020 has definitely been quite a year. And I think while it has been cloudy in the long run, to your point, we're going to look back and realize that we got very clear on what was really important, what really mattered and how we could really work together. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah. So Judy, thank you so, so much. I really appreciated the conversation. And I just, I want to encourage everyone, pre-orders are now available. And the book is The Six New Rules for Business, Creating Real Value in a Changing World, and due out officially January 12th. But people can go on Amazon, yeah, you can, wherever books are sold, as they say. Yes. <laughs> Walk down to your local retailer on this, on the, your local bookstore on the corner and order it there as well. So absolutely, you can get it online. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, listen, thank you so much and look forward to our paths crossing again. For those of you who are listening, thanks so much. We know you have a choice of how to spend your time and we're just really fortunate and glad that you spent your time with us today. Thanks, thanks so much. Kate. 